So we are in Ezra chapter 9. And I think it's always good to have a, uh, an overview, especially when we're looking at Ezra and the historical aspect of it all. So who, who would love to just give a couple sentences of an overview of what the book of Ezra is about? What's an overview or theme of the book of Ezra? I just, first thing it hit me was the temple being rebuilt. Okay, the temple being rebuilt. Worship being reinstated. Okay, very good. Yeah. Coming back to the Holy Land. Coming back to the Holy Land. And just preparing the hearts for true worship. Preparing hearts for true worship. Yeah. So remember, Ezra is the second leader bringing in another group from Babylon back to Israel. So when we think of the temple being rebuilt, remember that the temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, just as God said he would do. He would give the keys, essentially, to Nebuchadnezzar to strike down his own people. And... History's shown that and that's exactly what happened. And we know that the Israelites, they were taken to Babylon, 70 years at captivity. Remember the name of the first leader who brought a group of people back? Yeah, nope. Yeah. Zerubbabel. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he brought how many back the first go? 45 to 50,000. And then Ezra brings back about 5,000. So as Jim said, when Zerubbabel came back, they rebuilt the temple. They kept the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And so they were getting right with the Lord. True worship and how God instructed the Israelites to worship, it was taking place. And then remember they had, well, they stopped rebuilding the temple because they got complacent and, and those types of things. Do you remember how many years it was? The 15. 15 years of break. And then remember Zechariah and then Haggai, the two prophets, you know, came and they prophesied to the children of Israel saying, it's time to get this done. And so they began, they rebuilt the temple. They were worshiping the Lord. And then now we read uh, last week how Ezra was leading the people on the journey 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, to Israel. And so remember, Ezra had favor from the king, King Artaxerxes. And then remember, they had a fast and they prayed and they understood the dangers that was going, they were going to go through during, for the journey. But they had, they had the, hand, the, good hand of the, the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. Okay, so that brings us to Ezra chapter 9. So they are back in the Holy Land. And it says here now in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 9. Now when these things have been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priest 
and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Zebusites, Jebusites, sorry, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has inter intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in the unfaithfulness. So right there, those two verses is what some of you brought up already in our study. So they are back in the homeland. And we see that the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, they were not separated from these pagan uh, people, their spouses. And they took these uh, peoples uh, for their sons and their daughters. So when we read of Canaanites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Ites, okay. Light, bright, ites. <laughs> I don't know. Pagans, okay. And it says here, they're abominations. What do we know of these ites just from, you know, what we know from the scriptures, especially reading through Joshua? You know, what, what's the issue at hand here? Worshiping false gods. And I think it's interesting when you think of this, this has been Israel's main problem throughout their history right they want to serve god but yet they are influenced by others to worship their pagan gods all right and so has god instructed them in any way not to do this yeah. all over the old testament that they should not follow intermingle and what do we call the intermingle let's 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 put this to the new testament then what how does the new testament believers and non-believers unequally. Non unequally yoked light and darkness now wh why is that why does god say why did he tell them not to intermingle They would be drawn away. They would be influenced. Solomon, as Jim brought up before, he was influenced by all those wives and concubines. And then even Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, went south, went sideways and in his relationship with God. And so it is the same thing with believers of not marrying non-believers. And this is... Uh, for the same reason, um, there are so many, I've experienced that, being asked to marry people, you know, one being a believer and one not a believer. And I've never done that. In fact, I remember years ago, we had somebody, I would not do that, and they left the church. 
and went down the street and got another pastor to marry him in town here. Huh? I was mean. When I clearly laid out in the scriptures that God's word says that there is no fellowship between the believer and non-believer. And the, and the mindset was, well, I can change him. That is a lie from the pit of hell to think that we can change a man or woman. And so it's out of caring, it's out of God's love that he has that in his word. Um, and as John pointed out, we see here that it's, it's the leaders. It's the leaders who were influenced by these pagan people and their practices. You know, their practices are demonic. You think of the Canaanites. You know, their, their false god Molech and, you know, sacrificing children, putting them in the, in the statue, the, the hands of fire, and demonic. And so it's hard, hard to believe. Now, you and I think, well, how, how can they reconcile doing that and still trying to serve God? But I want to point out, this is happening in the body of Christ today. Many, many well-known pastors and ministry leaders are falling prey to the influence of women and going astray and committing adultery. And, you know, and some even try to hold on to serve the Lord. You know, I believe God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. But I think there are some things that can really disqualify a man from serving in that role as a pastor, a ministry leader. As certainly there has to be, you know, a time, a period of time of repentance. So we see here uh, the, the, the Levites and the priests, as John uh, Davis pointed out, uh, they weren't good examples at all. So keep in mind, too, if you think about Ezra, this man of God, as we looked at the last couple chapters and we talked about his testimony, wanting to do the right thing because he wanted to please the Lord. Can you imagine coming back from Babylon? You, you've seen God work. You've seen, you read in the Bible, the Old Testament, how God said 70 years and you, you saw things working and uh, God had stirred up his heart to lead a, the Levites back and to start up and really do temple worship like God wanted to. And then when he gets there, he gets this report. That's, that's tough. Now, he could have done many different things to, you know, after getting the report. Well, you know, God's working and we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to cause any waves. And that would have been disaster. And so what we see him do here, he... He acts so much like a man of God ought to, and a ministry leader, a pastor, or whomever, and we see that the sin really grieved him. So he, he couldn't just brush it away. So in verse 3 it says, well, wait, let me back up, because I want to touch on something real quick. In verse 2, it says, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race... has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. That goes back to what Millie was saying, that the holy race, what is the holy race? 
The Jews, yeah. And so, you know, it's just like what we talked about. That, that line to Jesus had to, be, had to be pure, right? The Messiah, that was God's plan from all time. The intermingled, it, it was going to, you know, so damage the Jewish race. Okay, so let's go to verse 3. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. And so... What's, what does appalled mean? What, what other translations do we have? Astonished. Astonished. Kind of like sickened. Sickened. Grieved. Overwhelmed. So this sin shocked Ezra. Now why would this sin shock Ezra? Absolutely. Remember, Ezra is, again, as we've read his testimony, he was so right on with the Lord and wanting to do so right by God to please him and excited, no doubt, for what God was doing and was, what he was going to do in bringing revival. I think that's what I was going. You know, I was thinking that they're in exile, they're in Babylon, they come back and they see God working, even... You know, when the work was halted, like Big said, for 15 years, and then they see God move and worship, and they're worshiping Him, and then boom. You know, you, they, they saw the goodness of the Lord, but they obviously chose the sin. So. Yeah, they were influenced. I'm sorry, that's really? That's where um, people start compromising. Mm. Like, you know, like Daniel stayed so but that's why so bad when they intermingled then well it doesn't feel so bad so then they start compromising yeah now that's a good point that is an excellent point because when you think of this sin or any sin what has to happen for a person to sin uh, 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 let me rephrase this what has to happen for a believer to sin what, there, there are steps that happens. It just doesn't happen that I've sinned. Now, let's just use this as an example, to fall into sexual sin. But it's not just sexual sin, is it? They married. They took what? They took the pagans, non-believers. Non so what, happened, what had to happen before that? Well, they made a choice. They made a choice. Okay, what helped them to make the choice? Not, they made that choice 100% on their free will, no doubt. Exactly. They fell away from worshiping God every day, like the prayers and that like they should have. Absolutely. And that's where I was going. Point being, when compromise happens, it's not the act of sin that was the beginning. Something influenced. Something... We, we still do it now. We still do it now. We're going to touch on that. So... 
but it always goes back to our relationship with God. If I want to please God, that's going to be what drives me. That's going to be what I live for. That's going to be, you know, I'm not going to allow things to distract me or lead me down that compromise. And when there is such a thing, when there's that temptation, if I'm in the Word of God, if I'm in fellowship in the church, if I am having, you know, a relationship with God, then I know I can go to Him and call out to Him. But when when compromise starts, it's it's subtle. It's, it's subtle. It's so subtle. Like Very Marty, subtle. Like Marty says you got to nip it in the bud. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Absolutely. I was talking to a guy one time, and he said that if he feels like a woman is being forward, I believe is the word he used, he instantly starts talking about his wife, and he's that always just that always takes care of it. And if it doesn't, he says the old trusty photo album. Have you ever seen a picture of my wife? You know, and talk, talk about their kids and things like that. That that takes care of it. But you don't do that. And you think, oh, isn't she nice? And then you build the friendship, the relationship, and it can go further from there. Like you said, it starts out small. Now, what in the world is that noise? <laughs> Same one. It's the same one. It's just louder. Still looking. Let me see. So, so the compromise, it all starts somewhere. Now, let's put your shoes in Ezra's. Uh, Yeah, it can be a, a lot of different things. And I think Ezra here is a great example for us, whether we're involved in ministry or we're not, in that we can't just allow sin amongst the people to let it run, you know, and that's difficult. It's a difficult thing. Um, but what the Lord's showing me, and certainly has spoken to me as a pastor looking at Ezra, is that when you have sin in the camp, you can't just say okay. Because what happens? What, what if we have, what if we don't have Ezra? What if, and this happens in church, small churches, big churches. We're just not going to cause any trouble. It gets worse. It gets worse. Especially when we're wanting to please the Lord and lead people to the Lord. Um, we got to pray. But there's also a time that we confront sin. And we see here Ezra, because he, he, he's, you know, sickened in his inner being, he's appalled, you know, he tore his garment. What's that mean? Extreme grief. Extreme grief, yes. And hair from his head and his beard. You know, this is all a sign of humility that he's distraught and he's humble before the Lord. 
You know, again, I think it's, we're living in a time for the body of Christ today because there is so much sin out there. It's, I mean, any TV show, I mean, my goodness, watching the NFL on Sundays, it, it, you, it just, you pick up on it. But we can become desensitized to it. Absolutely. To where, you know, what's the big deal? You know, some things that, you know, it might not seem big to, to some people, you know, like people's language. You know, does the word of God instruct believers of what our language ought to be or what it ought not to be? Absolutely it does. Our, our language, our speech should be seasoned with grace, should be salt. We shouldn't, shouldn't be talking like the world. And it's, un, it's unfortunate that, you know, the responses that when we bring this up to people, hey, you know, your, your language or well, everybody does it. Everybody talks that way. Well, no, not everybody does. And everybody shouldn't. And everybody shouldn't, but... Uh, There's people who work with Don't cuss around John. Okay. <laughs> I respect I, that. I respect that. Right. I was thinking the other way, when believers... Yeah, that's the point here. When believers yeah, use the language... Yeah. Especially around our kids, you know, if I can if I can swear in front of my kids, can I really expect them to listen to anything I have to say about this being a spiritual leader in the home? They're not going to listen. They're going kids. They understand hypocrisy. That, they understand guess, it. And in that, a non-believer would tell us we're wrong in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, they see a standard somewhere. If, mm -hmm. if using foul language is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, absolutely. so, you know, in the body of Christ, we've got to be careful not to minimize sin, justify it, because it all leads to a commonplace, and that's kind of what happened here with Israel. They got comfortable again. They let these distractions, these pagan people, influence them, which tells me that they were not in the word of God. They weren't having their relationship with God. And then it happened. Verse 5, it says, But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown to the heavens. So, what can we say about Ezra here as he opens up this prayer? Absolutely. He's taken ownership. He's going before the Lord. He's, he understands his calling. And he understands he's not, he's not above the people. He's a mediator between God and the people. Daniel did the same 
and Daniel did the same thing. And Nehemiah, as we'll read, did the same thing. David did the same thing at times. Verse 7 says, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt on account of our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. And so, John mentioned before how powerful this prayer is. And it's already powerful in that, uh, you know, Ezra humbled himself and he prayed and he included himself, he took ownership. But then what he says here in verse 7 and part of his prayer, I mean, it's pretty deep of what he says. He, because he's being very direct in his prayer, intentional, specific. And when you think about these things that he said when he talks about the kings, our kings and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands. So they were delivered into the hands of, of kings, and when you think about sin, sin will rule over our hearts. When we compromise and it, and it just goes to sin and we don't deal with it, this is we're delivered over to the sin, and the sin you know governs our heart, it rules over our hearts. And then look at the sword. To the sword. Delivered to the sword. What, what does a sword do? Cuts. It cuts. Sin cuts. It wounds us. It hurts us. And then delivered into captivity. Well, the word is like a two-edged Absolutely. <laughs> then the delivered into captivity. Sin results in bondage. And then you think of the plunder. You can lose everything that you hold dear because of sin. That, it's amazing to me, um, amazing in a sense that I know, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, and certainly it's happening all over the place, how men have falling in, fallen into sin when they were, it was like if they were at the top of their game. And nobody's above falling but so many times it's like you know how could this be what was missing in their life it was the Lord and they lose everything they have and it brings humiliation it leaves you scorned saddened and degraded and isn't this exactly what Satan wants that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants to destroy us. He's a rob, he's a thief. He robs, he distorts, he kills. And so in that, it is so proper that we warn each other of sin. That's why fellowship and having that accountability. You know, I was sharing with a, a, a young believer, a very new believer, 
uh, yesterday how important it is to be around other Christians. Christians that will love you and Christians that will help you in your walk. I think back to your life. I think back to our life. If we didn't have, you know, the discipleship that we had, the accountability and all those different things, you know, and just the opposite of that, if we're not holding one another accountable and we profess to be a Christian and we're not in fellowship, it's inevitable that they will compromise and that they'll walk in the ways of the world. They'll go back to Egypt, right? And what you'll hear then, well, don't judge me. Have you ever heard that one? Don't judge me. You can't judge. The Bible says don't judge. Well, let's uh, open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Look what Jesus said. We, we make judgments all the time. If a brother is in sin, we, are, we ought to love them enough to go to them and share with them in love the truth. If they're not, if they're not willing to listen, you know they're not in a good place. And we do that in love. And if we, if, if we don't, if we just let sin run rampant and, you know, just let them go, you know, we're not being obedient to the Lord, we're not loving, and we're, you know, certainly can't expect that brother or sister in the Lord to, to prosper in the Lord. Difficult thing, but True. And then verse 8 in this prayer says, But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us as an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. So, this is grace. In the midst of all that I just said, Lord, we know that you're working and we know that we are the remnant. We know that um, you have, you've given us unmerited favor. And it's interesting, he says, and to give us a peg in his holy place. And a peg here speaks of a tent peg where you pound into the ground you set up when you set up a tent. And so when you do that, you're taking ownership of that, that habitat, right? You're saying, I'm setting this up, this is mine. And so this is what, this is what he's saying when he says peg in his holy place. They, they're God's children. The holy habitation is God, and you know God allows us to have fellowship with him. He wants to have fellowship with us. And he says, a little reviving in our bondage. You know, a measure of revival, I think the New King James says. Is that right? Measure and revival in verse 8? Yes. What, you know, even while they were in captivity, God was still working. I'm fascinated that God told them, go... Go to Babylon and prosper. Just go there. Don't fight the king. Just go there and essentially be the remnant. 
because God knew what he was going to do. In 70 years, he was going to, you know, judgment would be done, they would come back. And God understood that, you know, obviously he understood he had a plan. But isn't it interesting that when we have revival in our own hearts, anybody ever have a revival in your own heart? Hopefully, right? Multiple times, like maybe sometimes weekly. I don't know, daily. You know, you know when the Lord works and he just, he stirs your heart up and he just, it's like the light went on. Sometimes maybe the light just goes on. It's like, oh Lord, you're awesome. And he just takes you to another place in your relationship with him. How many times does that happen when we truly cry out to him? When we cry out to God and want more of him. It could because that, that starts in the heart. It's a God thing. All revivals are a God thing. When you look at the major revivals and personal revivals, it's a God thing. We, we can't, we can't uh, you know, conjure up different ways to have revival. Revival is a God thing. And he allows us to take part in that. Well, we'll continue on here. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with uncleanness of peoples of the lands and with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all, that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escape remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. So what's Ezra saying there? At the end. When he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. What's, what's he doing? I get the picture of him saying, this is it. We're here. Do what you want to do. We're your remnant. Here we are. We have sinned. We are guilty. But we still belong to you. And he does that, not expecting God to zap him. He's running back into the loving arms of God. And that's, that's for every one of us. 
if we've fallen short, compromised. That grace, his arms are always open for us to come back to him. Absolutely, he's confessing. The whole prayer is full of confession. And in verse 9, even saying, you know, look, you, know, you gave us mercy in the sight of our enemy, the king of Persia, mm -hmm. to revive us and to repair your house, to rebuild its ruins. You did all these things, and then I guess, look what we did. Mm -hmm. So, Paul and on his knees asking interceding like you said earlier on on his behalf and on Israel's behalf. Yep, absolutely. You know, we're like Ezra today. We're in such a evil world right now, but the Christians are ruinous. Mm -hmm. And you know, we confess to God our sin and all around us, but we belong to you, help us through this world. So we have to keep faithful Absolutely. We certainly live in a fallen world. And turn with me real quick on, on that note to first John chapter two. And we'll close with this. Kind of goes with everything we've been talking about with sin and compromise and you know what takes place in the in the mind and the heart. You know, using Israel as a as an example, they had to have some desire for that pagan spouse. And it, it says here in verse fifteen of First John chapter two. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world. The love of the Father is not in him. So what is the world? The world system? Anything that's not of God is the world. Right. So it's a it's a, a world that's organized, you know, by the God of this world, which is Satan. So that's the world. For all that is in the world, excuse me, Jane. Okay, that's awesome. So the world is that system that, you know, is, is not of God as it's been explained or not acknowledgement of God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now this is interesting when you think about Satan, you think about Adam and Eve, what had to take place first before the first sin, original sin of man? What, had, what took place? What transpired for Adam and Eve to sin, to go against God's commandments? Huh? They follow Satan? The fall. 
the fall of Satan. Okay, what's the fall of Satan? Deception. Deception. Okay. You're right where I want to go, Dane. How did Satan fall? He wanted to be like God. He set himself up like the Most High, right? Ezekiel 14 and Isaiah. So, pride. So, pride happened. Bam, Satan's, you know, serpent. And then, then what happens, Millie? The lust of the eyes, and what, what did Eve see? The fruit was good. It was good. She wanted to be like God and to know right or wrong. Absolutely. So, so the three prevalent attitudes in, in verse 16, sensuality, naturalism, and boastful pride. Attitudes of the world. Yeah, bingo. When you okay, so you see in the world that we live today, say those things again, Jane. The three prevalent attitudes of the world sensuality, naturalism, and boastful pride. Right. So the pride is I'm going to live the way I want to live. Nobody's gonna tell me you know, that is probably the number one reason why people don't want to follow God. Because they don't want to have rules. Had somebody tell me I'd have to give up so much mm -hmm. to, to follow God, but I gave him the Jim Elliot, you know, statement. He is no fool who gives up what he can never keep. Uh, how'd that go? Give up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. Mm. Yeah. So all the stuff, all the worldly things that this fellow had and was accumulating was going to all burn up anyway. Amen. But, yeah. Amen. So we'll stop there um, and next week we will finish Ezra. We'll be in Ezra chapter 10, but very good. So, and then what's neat then, what is the response of the people? So Ezra went before the Lord in prayer, praying you know, for the, for the people, confessing. Then what, what is the response of the people? Well, in chapter 10, we get to read the response of the people. Confession. I said, na na I said naturalism. It's not naturalism. Materialism. Materialism. Okay. It says confession. Improper marriage is confessed. Yeah. So, and... Again, we're going to see revivals happen because of the Spirit of God working according to God's plan. So, praise the Lord. Uh, Dane, you want to close us in prayer, brother? Father, we come before you just to thank you for who you are. Father, we do thank you for your mercies and the grace you show upon us. Father, we thank you for the study that as we just read more about you and who you are, who you want us to be, Lord, and that's uh, be more like what you want us to do and you want us to be. Father, just help us to focus on you each day. Father, it's hard in the midst of this world to uh, so many things going on, so many distractions. Father, help us to just stay focused on you and uh, who you are. Father, we are thankful for uh, the 
blood of Christ. Mm. Thank you, Lord. We can, because of this forgiveness, um, we can come before you for and ask for forgiveness for when we do screw up, which is daily. Father, we, mm -hmm. we just love you and uh, thank you so much for who you are. Father, I lift up this ministry, this church to you, Father, this fellowship, that you would just continue blessing us and mm -hmm. just continue pouring your spirit out upon us, Father. And just uh, lift up my pastor and his family and just mm -hmm. pray that you would protect them from the uh, evil schemes of the devil, Father, that you would just protect them and encourage them. And, uh, Father, we thank you for them. Father, we thank you for just all that you do for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.